Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. Do you enjoy reading ghost stories alone at night? Have you ever binged an entire true crime series? Or do you ever unwind by watching horror films like The Exorcist or reading the supernatural novels of Stephen King? This is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, a series investigating the intersection between art, psychology, folklore, architecture, natural history, and Ireland's urban Gothic writing. I am Dr. Katie Mishler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900. This work is funded by an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Grant in collaboration with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. Today, I am joined by poet Vona Grork, who previously served as the curator of Newman House, now the home of Molly, Museum of Literature Ireland. I will speak to Vona about her curation of the Hopkins Room, where poet Jared Manley Hopkins once lived as UCD professor of classics until his death in 1889. I will begin our conversation by asking her her memories of the room and her initial reaction to the space, which she hasn't seen in roughly 20 years. It's actually slightly airier than I remembered. Yeah. My, my vision of it, I suppose, because the fir- very first time I saw it, which is often the time that sticks in your mind, it was full of furniture. So, and it was dark um, and the windows were covered up with other furniture and so on. So my 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 first impression was of a, a dark, cramped room. And it's not a dark, cramped room. So I was just reminded of that when I walked in today, that it's quite airy and quite bright and the view is lovely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I would say by Dublin standards, this is quite a spacious room, even for contemporary times, I would say. What um, what what role did you play in Newman House initially? How did you come to curate this so space? So I was assistant curator to Dr. Christine Casey, who was, the, who was the curator. And then when Christine went to take up an appointment in UCD as um, a lecturer in history of art, I became the curator. But it was while I was working with Christine as assistant curator that we did up this room. So we got it cleared out, got all the furniture taken out. We got the awful lino ripped up. We got the floors done, as you can see. And then we set about um, getting the fabric of the room right and then furnishing it the way that it would have been furnished. And I read in your article for the LA Review of Books, I read that you consulted with some, uh, I think you said with some local Jesuit priests about um, the types of things that would be in the room to make it sort of historically accurate. Yeah, I went down to Father Barber on Leeson Street and he was really helpful. Um, He liked the fact that we were doing it and he did a bit of research of his own and he even came up with furniture. That pre-due was provided by Father Barber and the Jesuit community in Leeson Street. Um, And he provided, he gave me some sense of um, what the imagery would have been like on the walls as well, what what kind of, um, of, of artwork might have been here, um, and just a general sense of simplicity. I remember he stressed that, that it would have been a simple space, that it would have been a, a space for prayer and for study and for sleep. It wasn't a place for entertaining. It wasn't a place for... Um, you know, cocktail parties, obviously. <laughs> it was a simple 
spare, studious place. It was. It, it, we weren't to go over over the top in terms of decorating it. We were to to be um, restrained and respectful of the Jesuit ethos, which was simplicity. And and uh, as you see, that's that's pretty much what we did. I mean, there are some decorative elements even in the fabric of the room. There's the wallpaper, pr- fairly plain, but at the same time, not not totally plain yeah. and this was based on um, scraps that we found that were on the wall so we had this made up um, and you can see the graining on the door which you don't really think of as a decorative element but it is a decorative element but it's the kind of decoration that we felt was okay without you know having anything that was fancy as right. such so I mean everything is is very simple but there are I suppose little touches involved in the room that make it a pleasant space to be in. Yeah. So that you're not, you're not walking in here and going, ooh, as a visitor now, as a contemporary visitor now, I think you're not walking in going, ooh, I don't like, don't like this. It's quite a pleasant room to be in. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it really struck me how you refer to this as a pleasant space because it is. And you do mention it is quite airy and bright. And even on an overcast day like we're having today, you can look out into the Ivy Gardens. It's a beautiful view. Um, anyone would be so lucky to have a room like this to yeah. live and work in and write in, I think. Um, but what do you think this space tells us about Hopkins? Is there something that we can kind of understand him about him by being in this room? If, if, if all you knew of Hopkins was that he had written, let's say, The Wreck of the Deutschland and The Terrible Sonnets, mm-hmm. and you started with that and you tried to imagine the kind of space that was his living space, you probably wouldn't imagine a room like this. You would probably imagine a room that was about the size of a coffin and had, had <laughs> like a crack in the wood for light yeah. and that was smelly and that was damp and that was just entirely horrible um, because his mind in those terrible sonnets, those six extraordinary pieces of language, um, suggests somebody who is uh, very much ill at ease with the world, very much ill at ease with himself. Um, He's tortured, really. He's a tortured soul, I suppose. Um, We we would recognise the term now. He's somebody who's warring with everything, of every aspect of his life and every aspect of his mind. So you would expect the space that was his living space to, to in some way, evoke that. And it doesn't. You know, we've agreed that it's a pleasant space. So obviously, there's something... There was something going on in his life that um, was not settling into the comfort of a room like this. Now, outside the door, it was probably a bit of a different story for him because he was um, a classics fellow and he had to teach quite intensively during the day and also in the evening. And the real bugbear of his life was the marking examination papers. And he had to do hundreds of those. And he complained terribly about having to do that. And for any of us who have taught, it is... <laughs> it is a horrible task and he had to do as I say hundreds and hundreds and and that has been been proven by research that his claims were not exaggerated so outside the door he was thrown so in inside the door he could he could be Jared Manley Hopkins and mm. there wasn't too much about this room that was going to um question his right to be here um his possible peace of mind his religious vocation he could be himself here mm. outside the door he had to be something that he was not comfortable with he had to be um a, a hard pressed teacher he had to be sociable with the boys he had to um he these were they were not congenial to me he didn't come from that background these were the sons of middle class uh, Catholic 
uh, well, farmers and and whatever, you know, it was not a background that he understood. And I don't think he would have really related very well to the boys who were here. I think he would have found them like a herd of animals, (laughs) actually. (laughs) You know, I think he would have found them deeply um, troubling to him. So there's the room, which is all right. And then there's outside the room, which he found. Somebody else might have made a better fist of it. Maybe, you know, his his appointment was controversial. And there was a group of people involved in the appointment who felt that the appointment, which was a significant one, the the, um, the classics fellow, should be given to somebody who was Irish and so it should be given to somebody who wasn't a convert. So he came as an oddball. Okay. And he was a controversial yeah. appointment in that way. And that never, he was always seen as an oddball. He was always seen as, you know, a strange, strange man outside that door. He was ill at ease with the world and the world was ill at ease with him. But inside here, I like to think that at least he had some kind of mental ease and comfort. Yeah, that's really, that. I really like that. That's a really lovely way of looking at it. Because I, I know, um, gosh, his teaching appointment sounds incredible. I actually have a friend who, whenever we're complaining about our teaching load, we kind of think about Jeremy Hopkins' teaching load in comparison. And yeah, I think we're, we're a bit better off than he was. Could you also talk a little bit about kind of the curation of these different pieces and things? Like maybe we can probably get some pictures or something that people want to look at, like just of the space later, yeah. if people want to look at them. But do you remember, do you have any particular memories about picking out some of these pieces? I do. I do. So as I say, um, some of them came from the Jesuit community, like the predio yeah. Father Barber, like fetched that from someplace <laughs> in the in the Jesuit community in Leeson Street and said, here you are. This would have been in a Jesuit room and in fact I think even at that point in the 1990s they were still in quite a few of, mm. of the Jesuit living rooms um, so that that I know exactly where that came from um, the bed he gave me an idea of simplicity but a lot of the stuff that we got that's in the room now um, we bought on a very limited budget from the shops in Francis Street mm-hmm. um, and so we, we got the main thing so we got actually this I think we found someplace in in the house this um this cabinet here. Okay. Um, I think we had that, but we bought the bed. Um, I can't remember. I, I, I know that we wouldn't have got a very comfortable mattress because <laughs> we would have <laughs> known right. not to. Yeah. So I think we got quite a, uh, I'm not sure, I'd have to look under the cover and see. It might even just be a layer of sponge because I think we thought, well, you know, we definitely don't want a sprung mattress there. <laughs> um, the rugs we got on Francis Street. Uh, this okay. came from, I'm pretty sure this came as well from... Um, uh, from Leeson Street. Um, oh, okay. What, yeah. would you, what would you call the, is there a name? A washstand. A washstand, okay. Yeah, with the, with the, um, the ewer and the basin. Yeah. And I remember getting these things, the, the cutthroat razor and the, um, <laughs> The, the, the shaving stuff and this. We got this in a job lot um, in a place in Francis Street and I was delighted with these because they were just plain black and I thought, you know, if... It's hard to know whether... I think he was a little bit neurotic. Was he also vain? It's really hard to know because, it's, mm-hmm. you know, he, obviously he didn't write about that, but I felt that if he... Of course, he did have to attend to his body and I felt that these were probably the choice he would have made. He wouldn't have gone for anything fancier or... So kind of you know, plain, plain just, back just, brushes. Just plain, yeah, yeah, just plain ebony and uh, the same with the shaving brush and so on and this little thing for the shaving cream. Oh, um, wow. At this stage, when we were just adding on these decorative details, it was kind of fun. 
fun because, you know, we were just going around, as I say, with very little money, just trying to find things that were plain. And the the, the need for plainness and the very little money kind of sat beside each yeah. other in a comfortable <laughs> way in that if we'd been looking for anything fancier, we wouldn't have been able to afford it. So it, that, that worked out quite nicely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the things we had to kind of take a bit of a punt on. So, for example... Over here, we felt that with a room of this shape, yeah. obviously you, you would set your workspace up where you had a view. Like you wouldn't Absolutely. waste this on having yeah, the bed no. here. You would obviously have the bed in the corner there and, and, and also where you wouldn't have to see the bed. There was a, just a, a little element of decorum that when, if somebody did come into the room, it would be behind, the bed would be behind the open door. So this was the obvious place to put um, a workspace. Um, and... It, we didn't know that there was something like this slope-topped um, table here, um, but we found this and we thought, well, somebody who had all those papers to correct, a little bit of storage is a good idea so that maybe he's working here and as he marks them, you know, they go in underneath. Um, oh, oh, there's oh. all the papers that were, ah. Oh. <laughs> we're having a little discovery oh, moment. Oh, that's good. We've just lifted up the, the lid and found things that I thought had, had disappeared in the intervening 25 years. So oh, that's this, cool. Yeah, so this is sort of a writing desk, I guess. Uh, it's sloped so you can write on top of it, but then inside there's also storage. And there's yeah. all the, what is, is this a that's little? That's an inkwell. A little inkwell. And are these the manuscripts you, I say manuscripts yeah. in scare quotes, that you created, the, the letters and yeah. everything? Yeah, exactly. So back in those days when things, we didn't have laser scans and stuff, um, I remember going out to the archives in UCD and they, they fished out what they had and I did colour photocopies, uh, which was the, the best that we could do in mm -hmm. those days. And I took the, uh, I was living in Drumcondra then, and I took the colour photocopies home and I um, left them soaking overnight in tea. And I, That's for the, the different ones, I would use different strengths tea, because different strengths of tea, because uh -huh. I didn't want them all to look the same. So um, that's why you get some that are more like beige and some that are more cream is because I used <laughs> different kinds yeah. of different strengths of tea in them. So, yeah. Um, so I, I know that um, a couple of the things that I'd made in this way, there was a letter to Newman, actually, um, that they have out in the UCD archives. Okay. No, a letter from Newman. Oh. And it had the envelope with his address on it, with Hopkins' address on it. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was from Newman. I'd have to check that now. It was a long time ago, but I think mm -hmm. it was from Cardinal Newman. Um, and I used to have the envelope there um, on the on the mantelpiece. Um, and it, it definitely had Hopkins' name and address with this address yeah. on it. And that got stolen because somebody thought it was an, an original <laughs> an original piece, yeah. which I thought was very funny. Really. Yeah, I thought, well, I must have done a good you job did. with the very tea bags. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was saying that we, we don't know for sure that he had this kind of a setup, but it seems likely. Yeah. And uh, I remember... This seemed like it was a nice um, addition to the room because it's kind of battle-worn a little yeah. bit. It's uh, what they were calling in the 90s distressed, distressed <laughs> furniture. Um, but I just felt like it, it shows um, years and years of wear and tear. And um, there's something about it that kind of speaks of frustration and just labor and exhaustion mm. about it as well. All these marks and scuff marks and ink marks and everything that's on it. So we were pleased with that because it was evocative. Absolutely. Um, so even, I mean, you know, we're, we're gambling on it being appropriate, but certainly it was evocative of something that we, we right. know was happening in his yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also, I do agree. I mean, I would, I 
sincerely hope he would have had his desk looking out of this window, looking out onto the ivy gardens. It would have been, I'm sure all this would have looked quite different then, but it's such a wonderful view yeah. to have. Yeah, and he was, you know, so... Um, interested in nature that I think mm. he definitely would have needed the sight of a bit of greenery. I know he, he did lament how grey um, Dublin was yeah. as a city. He called it a joyless city. Mm. And he did lament how far away Phoenix Park was as well because, you know, he, he was somebody who needed um, some, some, some nature about him, certainly, but also a bit of untamed nature. And uh, Ivy Gardens being gardens as opposed to a park would have been, you know, maybe a quarter of the way there for him, but at least it was trees and it was greenery. Yeah. So, yeah, but he, he was sorry that he didn't have, because, you know, he did love, we can tell that from the poetry, but we also know from the letters that he loved being in nature and that he, I think he said his dream, his dream place to be was a farm in the West Country. This oh, wow. is not a farm no, in, no. in the West Country, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. What was, could you tell us a little bit more about his relationship with Dublin? Yeah, so he was um, sent here um, in 1884 as mm -hmm. a fellow of in, in classics. Um, and he had never been here before that. And so he came, um, as, as I've already alluded to, he, he came as a kind of controversial appointment um, because he was English um, and because he was a convert um, to Catholicism. And then when he talks about being at a, um, at, um, a, a tri being thrice removed, so he's removed from England and he's removed from his family who are not Catholics. And then he's further removed from them by the fact that he chose to become a Jesuit, not just a Catholic, but also mm -hmm. a Jesuit. Um, so he, he comes with, um, kind of baggage and history, but he has lived in cities before. He's lived in Sheffield and, uh, a number of other, a number of other places. So it's the, the idea of Dublin is not all that, um, intimidating to him, I imagine. But when he comes here, he begins to realize that he is um, not at home, let's say, yeah. in all kinds of ways. So we're talking 1884, the, um, the, the nationalist movement was beginning to become strong and, of course, not to embrace people who had the kind of history that he had. And he didn't find like-minded souls. He, he almost could have. I wonder about this a little bit because, for example, um, there is a record of him going to John Butler Yeats's studio across St. Stephen's Green, and he met W.B. Yeats there and he met the father, John Yeats, and Catherine Tynan was sitting for a portrait. So he met her and she was a, a young woman poet. Um, and um, he, he could have made friends with her, but um, I guess he just I, I don't think he was a man who would have made friends easily, really. I think he was just such an odd bod. Um, and was so his, his mind worked in a way that was incredibly intense. Um, and he was a little, I suspect, a little neurotic and a little maybe self-pity as well. Yeah. So I don't think he would have found it easy to be congenial with people. Um, but he didn't find people who were congenial to him, really. He had some friends who lived out close to where RTE is now, um, and he did go and visit them sometimes. But I think he was largely a solitary figure. Uh, and I think he found Dublin... Um, a difficult place to be in because of the nationalism, but also he didn't find it beautiful. He mentioned that there were a few good buildings, um, but there wasn't enough greenery. There wasn't enough greenery in any city in the world for him, really. He needed not to be in a city, I, I suspect. Um, but it was a poor city. Um, it was a, it, it was a little decrepit. The buildings, what good buildings there were, were decrepit buildings. 
Um, and, and there was a lot of illness and a, a whole lot of poverty. Um, and so he, he, he reacted against all of that. It wasn't, it, it was not a pleasant place for somebody like him to be really. Um, yeah. And he didn't find it pleasant. He didn't seek out whatever pleasantness there was there for him. He just accepted the kind of, I don't know, this, this city is not my city and it's a horrible place to be and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's interesting. I know I, I'm hesitant to bring it back to Joyce, but sometimes all seems like, especially here in Mali, all roads do lead to Joyce. Um, there obviously are overlaps I think in kind of the the sense of being kind of a solitary outsider of um you know create kind of the, the lone artist misunderstood that sort of thing do you th do you know if Joyce I mean he must have known who Hopkins was or do you think it's possible that he like do you think he would have been aware of him at I, all? I think it's one of the great missed opportunities of Irish literary history is that those two men did not have a friendship of some kind. Yeah. Um, well, actually, he died in 1889 and Joyce graduated from the National University in 1904. So it, I, I, yeah. they, they wouldn't have met, but I think... Um, it's it's a great missed opportunity that Joyce did not know more of Hopkins' work, but then mm. nobody did because the work wasn't published. But I think had Joyce had access to the extraordinary experiments of Hopkins' language and his his po poetry, his poems, um, I think that would have helped Joyce to formulate his own experiments in prose. Mm. Um, I think he would have seen ways in which um, the the in, in in which language could be kind of reinvented from the inside out because Hopkins had kind of done that already with poetry. Now, I'm not saying that Joyce would have been a better writer if he'd read Hopkins, but I think, you know, he, he would have, he would have seen, he might have just, he might have recognized a kindred spirit, I think, in terms of yeah. what you could do with the language and how you could make it both expressive and sincere, but also delighted in itself and its own ingenuity and its own vividness and freshness. Yeah, no, that's that's really lovely and lovely to think about if they had, even if Joyce had had Hopkins. I mean, we're, we're getting into kind of the world of what if and make believe and magic thinking and everything. But if Hopkins had survived and actually had been his teacher or lecturer, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe the closest they've ever got is here on this floor. Yeah, <laughs> we had the Joyce yeah. classroom over there and that's the Hopkins right, yeah. room here. Um, but yeah, uh, maybe they're ghosts meet maybe on the bathrooms. <laughs> I hope so. Um, it it is interesting because I know you said this in the um, the piece in the LA Review of Books, which we'll, we'll link to it in this episode because it is it is very good and very informative. But I was kind of curious um, how you kind of said like, you know, we had did the Joyce classroom was that curated first? Yeah. Then yeah. okay, and then the need to kind of also celebrate the importance of Hopkins and his literary contribution and his, I guess, history in this house was also, I thought it was really interesting how that was something that you all also really set out to do with this yeah. space. Yeah, I mean, it was a time of great change for the building. Um, in that uh, 85 was being restored. As as I worked here, mm -hmm. um, the, the Joyce Lassen was already done and we used to rent that out for meetings and, and, um, mm -hmm. and you know, as a teaching space as well. You know, the, 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 the teaching rooms here and in, a, in association with the teaching rooms in Earlsford Terrace, you know, all the, the well, you know, a, a lot of the important writers 
of the early part of um, of the 20th century uh, and a lot of the important political leaders of the early part of the 20th century moved through these buildings, moved through these these rooms. So um, that I think there's still more to be done with that aspect of, of these buildings. But I think, in, you know, it, it's great that Molly is here and it's great that the literary heritage is, is being honoured and preserved. But it, it really is an extraordinary building in terms of the way that it brings um, so many different strands of Irish life together as kind of religious history, an education history, a political history, a literary history, an architectural history. There's so much in, in, in these buildings that I think make them, and of course, their fabulous position. So oh, yeah. Then, yeah, absolutely. No, they're absolutely stunning. But you're right. There are so many histories yeah. in this building. And I do think like we're, that's something Molly will definitely be doing in the future is more kind of uncovering the histories of Newman House. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, though, is ghosts. <laughs> um, we have some, I guess, Molly lore, I call it, um, about both ghosts in the building, but also the ghost of Hopkins. Um, so were there, do you have any ghost stories or from your time here? Um, I'd love to be able to say, yes, I have seen the ghosts of Hopkins. <laughs> and then another day, there was James Joyce yeah. right on the stairs in front of me. But I don't have those stories, unfortunately. Um, I do remember being in my office on the ground floor at the back of the building one day and uh, somebody was in with me and uh, it wasn't just me. He saw it too. We saw a shape go down across the window and uh, I got a fright. I thought somebody had fallen off the, the top of the, the, the building. and I was terrified, so I ran out. There was no sign of anybody. And um, George was the porter then, and George had been here a long time. I went out to George and so I said, George, I'm after, I don't know, I saw like a, something dark fall down past the window. It was uh, kind of worrying me. And he said, that's just the ghost. <laughs> so okay well there wasn't anything on the on uh, you know yeah. there wasn't anything on the pavement behind so I thought okay well it's not whatever I saw I don't know what it was it might have been a seagull or something yeah. who knows but look you know there's um in a building of this age and this complexity of usage there are going to be ghost stories um yeah. for sure um and it's also a building that has a lot of nooks and crannies and you know um little dark corners and rooms that don't get used very much where if you hear a foot a footfall or you know a creak of any kind you immediately think oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um i don't know it has the reputation of being haunted i can't honestly say that i have uh, other than that one time when um i would swear i saw something fall mm -hmm. but um, there was nothing that fell, so I, I can't entirely explain that. Um, but stories about Hopkins' ghost, um, I would be entirely dubious about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Hopkins... Uh, I like to think that he got some peace and death, um, and yeah. I'd prefer to leave him in Glasnevin Cemetery and not having him uh, wandering, um, t still tortured, around the, the corridors and, and rooms of this building. Or even having him still, yeah, marking endless exam papers yeah, please in let, the afterlife. Please let not that be the case for any of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and because I guess one of the, it's so great to have you here is because there's a lot of kind of myths in Molly about Hopkins and in the Hopkins room. And I, I, I told some of the, before we started recording, I told um, you some of them, like when I first came to Molly, actually, 
Um, I remember, I think it was my first or second day I was working in the library, which is adjacent to the Hopkins room where we are now. And I think um, someone was cleaning this space. So the door was open and I walked by and I was like, is this this mythic Hopkins room I've heard about? And I, there are lots of different stories at this time. Um, somebody told me that he he died in this room. Somebody told me he died in the bed you have here. Somebody, you know, there's all sorts of kind of stories that were circulating about Hopkins and his life, but mostly his death here, yeah. I feel. I'd be very surprised if he died on that on, on that exact bed, because as I say, <laughs> I got it in Francis Street. So unless there was some very convoluted history to that exact yeah. bed, I don't think he died. I don't think he died there. Look, we, we know exactly um, what happened to him. He, this was his room for the time that he was in University College. He never had robust health, but he began to become very ill with what we think may have been um, typhoid fever and um, contracted from the um, corrupted drainage system in the building. The only problem about that is that loads of people didn't get it and it is a contagious disease. So I'm not entirely sure there's different theories about it. But anyway, he became extremely ill. And it's, you know, we're, we're up on the third floor here and the stairs are narrow and it's still a functioning teaching space with a lot of burly young men moving around all the time. It's difficult to nurse somebody in those, you know, you've got to bring up um, a water and, and nursing equipment and medical equipment and you've got to climb the stairs um, and you're, you're going against the flow of all these um, young undergraduates. So it's a tricky space if you're trying to nurse somebody who's dangerously ill. So they moved him down to the ground floor and um, that's where he died I think he was there for about three or four days mm -hmm. and uh, he died there on, on the ground floor um, so that we know exactly where the space was in which he died and around about the time that we decided to do up this room there was a lot of controversy and letters to the Irish Times and so on and so forth about the fact that we weren't doing up the room where he died and that we were dishonouring um, uh, Hopkins memory and and in particular because the space in which he had died and had later been converted into a women's toilet. And so this idea of Hopkins' death room being a toilet, this was just terrible. And the fact that we were doing up the room that had been his for all except three or four days of his time in Dublin didn't trump the fact that the room that he died in was um, was was uh, still a lady's toilet, which it isn't anymore. Um, but we felt we were doing exactly the right thing, that we could make this room into a proper monument for him and we could give a sense of what it, it, it probably would have been like. Um, whereas if we wanted to do something like that with the space that was the lady's toilet, we would have had, like, you know medical equipment and <laughs> it would not have been you know, fair to him in a way because you know he was a writer so and he was a um a, a jesuit priest and he was a, a scholar so you want to have all of that reflected you don't just want to have his illness and death um being being shown in the room so it was controversial but and and when we opened it gus martin who was the professor of english out in ucd did the honors here and we had a great group of of um, scholars and people come through that evening um but still and all the next day the story was that the 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 the, the toilets were still there <laughs> so that's just uh, that's just Dublin for you yeah. or maybe that's just the the 90s for you um but how did I get onto that now oh the ghost the okay ghost, yeah. so yeah so we if, if the ghost is going to be anywhere it's going to be downstairs <laughs> but I I uh 
I'm not amenable to that idea, really. I just think that's... Well, yeah, we'll leave him in not, peace. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I, I yeah. also do think that it, I mean, it's lovely to have this space where, like, for me, I love the view, the idea that we can kind of, obviously, the city's changed. And even right now, you can see the, you know, what is becoming more and more familiar on the Dublin skyline. You can see the cranes and the office buildings yeah. going up in the distance. So it has obviously changed. But I think it is so lovely to be able to look out and look at what yeah. he would have looked at when yeah. he was, yeah. I imagine, yeah. writing and, you know, using yeah. and these yeah. sorts of things and also you know one of the the aspects of the room that, mm -hmm. um, here is the fireplace mm. and this has a fantastic story to tell because there is a record of after so i mean what he wrote was not um, popular with his um with his jesuit community and any attempts that he made to get it published were fairly much thwarted uh, even when he had been asked to write as was the case with the wreck of the deutschland um, so it was so his work was so strange, you know, it wasn't pretty, it wasn't decorous, it wasn't sentimental, uh, it wasn't any of the things that poetry of the that that poetry of the time might have been in in Dublin. Um, it certainly wasn't nationalist and it certainly wasn't balladic. It was quite the opposite of of the ballad tradition. Um, so it wasn't. It, it didn't find a comfortable home. He didn't find a comfortable home. His work found an even less comfortable home. So there is a story recorded of um, the day after he died. So we know he died downstairs. The day afterwards, somebody was passing by the door here and saw the Dean of Studies feeding papers of Hopkins into, into the fireplace. Um, and it was probably well meant because they considered him so odd and they considered his work would in, in a way be, um, be a slight on him. They, they didn't understand, as is often the way with innovators, with experimenters, you know, it, it's it's a risk. It's a big risk that he took with his work and the risk was not honoured or recognised in, in, in the time that he had. So I think probably it was well meant. They were thinking, you know, these... Um, strange ravings of, <laughs> of, a, of an odd yeah. man, you know, let us, let us uh, honour him by, by making sure that nobody ever reads them and, um, and thinks less of him. But now, obviously, they didn't destroy everything, but certainly a lot of papers, heaven knows what was on those papers. Were they poems? Were they um, a kind of, some kind of a diary? Were, uh, heaven knows. I doubt it was the exam scripts. <laughs> I'd say the exam <laughs> papers survived everything. But yes, the Dean of Studies was seen feeding things into the fireplace. So that's, you, that's, that's really important um, part of the history of the room. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is something, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this or not, but I've always been curious, how did his, like, like how was he discovered? How did his paper survive? How, how have we come to kind of have Hopkins works today? Do you know anything about that history? I know a little, a little about it. So he had a friendship with Robert Bridges and he exchanged poems of Bridges and Bridges had tried to get him published. Um, and uh, that, that friendship was terribly important to him. Bridges didn't fully get the work either because Bridges was a much more conventional poet than mm -hmm. Hopkins was. And he didn't fully understand what Hopkins was doing, that way that he had of kind of reaching inside language and grappling 
uh, almost like pulling the heart of the language out and, and showing it in a, in, a, in a different way, fracturing it in order to assemble it in a different way. Um, but Bridges did see a kind of genius in it. Um, so he held on to whatever he had of, of Hopkins and he was instrumental in getting a book of Hopkins poetry published in, I think it was 1917. Okay. And I think now, I'm, I'm, I might be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure there is a record of Catherine Tynan um, walking across St. Stephen's Green with that book. So she's just bought that book in a in a bookshop in Dublin. She's been terribly excited by it and she's walking across the green and she has it and she opens it and she starts to read it and she's so dumbstruck in a in a positive way that she just kind of stands there and reads more. Um, so it's from it's from that book, it's from that first publication which happened long after um Hopkins had died that his um his our our knowledge of him comes, yeah. Um, how has Hopkins influenced your work at all? I know influence maybe is kind of a tricky word to use or to unpick, but how do you think reading his work has maybe helped your poetry in some sense or helped you get a new understanding of language that you brought to your poetry? Well, I don't write like Hopkins. I don't write anything like Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, 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 In those terrible sonnets, which are really searing examinations of what it feels like to to be at odds with with the world to be out with the world to be troubled to be fractured to be not able to be hopeless to be full of despair and, and doubt um they are extraordinary poems but they're very high-pitched poems and i don't write at that pitch um it's not it, it's just not where i want to position my work very few contemporary writers would be comfortable pitching their work at that level. Mm -hmm. I would say that there's a, a, the, the contemporary approach would be something kind of lower and quieter and more interested in detail and in, in almost slyly importing whatever kind of psychological texture or depth there is um, into, into the poem via details and circumstantial details mm -hmm. as opposed to this absolute howl of anguish that's there in the terrible sonnets. Um, but I have learned things to do with imagery from them. Um, and mostly when we read them, we hear, we hear that howl of anguish, but he's very, very good at creating images that help us to, to inhabit the world of the poem, to see what, to see things, to see things yeah. in the poem. He's a materialist in that sense, as well as being somebody with a, a very strong spiritual inquiry. Um, at stake in the work as well but there is enough material detail I think for us to feel our way and I I really admire how he does both of those things together so the contemporary would be more interested in the in the imagery in the small detail and um, that's not really what he's interested in he's using those in a strategic way to help service this great psychological depth that's in that's in the work which as I say contemporary writers would be a little more cautious about probably but um, technically, he's he's quite brilliant. He really is quite brilliant. He's so um, nobody else writes like like Hopkins, you know. Mm -hmm. And people who try to write like Hopkins usually end up sounding very silly um, because <laughs> it's just he was a one off, you know. And his mind, which was so extraordinarily creative in terms of what it did with language, 
it's it's it creates a certain um the the poems have a, a kind of a a color and a pitch and a tone and a voice in them that just can't be struck by anybody else and that's that's a really rare thing you know if 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 we think of a lot of poets um they they're imitated sometimes quite successfully or the influence that they have comes out or it shows through if you like in generations of of younger poets like you know you can see Heaney's influence on my generation and the generation that came after me you can see Yeats's influence on um poets like Ivan Boland um who who would have tussled with that influence and would have tried to to um to work with the influence but also to chafe against it but with Hopkins there it just it doesn't it it can't be absorbed. It's a thing entire of itself. The work is entire of itself and it can't be diluted. It can't be soaked in or absorbed by anybody and, and um made into a, a smaller or different thing. It just is its own perfect magisterial, uh, extraordinary achievement. That's gorgeous. So do, what do you think his legacy is in poetry then? Um... It's going to have something to do with experiment, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be experimenting in the 1880s, you know, it's, <laughs> um, you know, that's, we, we don't really look to the 1880s when we think of, you know, really serious experiment in language. So he, he was, um, applying a kind of a, um, a, a theory of language, which was working with Inscape and, and so on. So he was applying these theories and he was able to, to, to work them in a, in a quite ingenious way. Um, so experiment would, would be at the heart of it. But I think, you know, um, questions of, of doubt, um, and mm-hmm. of sincerity. See, there's no mask in, in Hopkins in his work. Um, and, you know, we, we were kind of quite comfortable with this idea of the mask of the poet and because it comes from Yeats, where he talks about, you know, the difference between the person who sits down to breakfast and the person who writes the poem. But with Hopkins, there's no mask. There's no strategy. There's just absolute um, in, and full on and totally engaged um, immersion in in language and um, in in the idea of language as being fit to describe the terror of a doubting soul, of somebody who's on the edge of despair. Um, and that note, I think, is is a, a kind of a golden hallmark for poets. Not, not that I, I don't think they can write like them, but I think that urgency of engagement is something that I think is um, is is important still. That idea yeah. of that you you know poetry is for extreme feeling, extreme disturbance. That you have to find the language that's meet to describe that, that's able to describe yeah. that, and you have to work. You know, it's not going to be leaden language. It's not going to be ordinary, flat, prosaic language. It's going to be language that is worked incredibly intricately in order to be able to to um to describe that state of mental anguish. This conversation is really making me want to read more Hopkins. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, if you were to recommend, like, where should someone start if they wanted to read Hopkins? Is there a particular sequ- sequence? Is there a particular book? Or just dive in? I think it would have to be the terrible sonnets, really, okay. those six sonnets that were written in this mm-hmm. room. Um, and you, you're, you're, 
I wouldn't advise reading all six over a cup of coffee. I think you're, you you set aside a, a bit of kind of special space and, mm -hmm. and time and you take them seriously and you take them slowly and you read them many, many times over and take them one at a time and uh, read them out loud and read them out loud several times and observe the structure of the poem because the meaning is embedded in the structure so that for example when he breaks the word lingering over over when it's enjambed so that it comes over two lines there's a reason he's doing that it's not just to do with the meaning of linger, lingering you know he's not <laughs> you know he's he's very carefully exploiting the words in that way so i think you need to hear them out loud you need to hear them several times um and you need to really kind of suspend the usual expectations of how a poem is going to work and you have to really almost look at it scientifically. What what does the poem change? Okay, there's a break in the middle of the sonnet as, as the Italian sonnet has, this volta, but what actually changes over the course of this break? Is there is it like he's walked away and come back hours later? Is it a different mindset? Is it a different way of thinking? Is it a different pitch of language? And I think the more attention you pay to the minutiae of what happens within the poem, the more you'll get out of it and the more, particularly in these terrible sonnets, you'll see what it's like when somebody asks poetry to be extraordinarily expressive of um, really sincere um, trauma. The other thing I would say about it is that I don't think they're sociable poems. Um, although I'm saying that they're, 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 they're really good when heard out loud, I think that would be like one person alone in a room mm. as opposed to an audience. Yeah. Um, or they're not the kind of poems that I think you would, you know, make a, a, um, a little cocktail and sit around the, the hot tub with some yeah. friends and go, hey, let's share these, these Hopkins poems. They're not, they're, I mean, this is serious business. This is, okay. you know, there, it's, there's an earnestness to it. And it's a very rewarding earnestness, um, for sure. And that it will help, I think, a, a really serious engagement with these serious poems will help amplify our sense, not just of what a poem is, not just a sense of who Hopkins was, but our sense of what language is capable of. Because, I mean, we want language to be capable of, of expressing in a way that is, of expressing that kind of uh, trauma and upset and anguish in a way that is true and honest and sincere, but that's also fresh and interesting. Yeah. And that's what's extraordinary is that they do have that freshness and you're reading them and, and you feel the, the pain of the mind that has created them, but you also feel an excitement about the way the language is being used and being made new. Yeah. We also wanted to, not to kind of change gears too quickly, but I know there are some other things about the furniture you wanted to talk about. The the pictures, um, I mean, they are kind of standard stock religious images, yeah. but... Um, Do you remember picking them out? You know, I don't remember picking them out. And that's, <laughs> I wonder where they found in the building and uh, because they were religious or did they come... I don't remember with the, with the images. Um, I remember myself and Christine um, uh, not being sure about this. The mirror. So, yeah, because I thought, um, in a way, from what I, I know of Hopkins... I don't think he would have been looking at himself all that much. You know, mm. I think he, he he would have deliberately gone out of his way not to see himself or to 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 chasten any strand of of vanity or or ego that that um that he he could locate. So to have um such a um a present mirror and such a a nice mirror 
Um, I wasn't sure about it at all, but in the end, I think we also had to make a room that that looked good, <laughs> you know, that was appropriate, yeah. but that also um, was you know interesting to uh, you know with with interesting physical detail in it. So the mirror abides, but I still have a little a little question yeah. mark about it. Um, the books, I don't remember these books. I think these might be. Oh, maybe they actually, do you know what? They came from the Jesuits. Oh, okay. Yeah, they did. They did. Matthew Arnold. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they came up from the Jesuit community. So there's, there's, um, there's lots of bits and pieces. I think that the, um, the Poe was one of the last things that we bought. Yeah, I'm curious about that. (laughs) (laughs) In a way, it seems cheeky, but in another way, you know, it's, uh, it's probably fair enough on the hot water bottle because yeah, I've never seen a hot water bottle like so. Is that so? It's ceramic. It's ceramic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Precursor to the rubber hot water bottle. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a beast to carry upstairs, but uh, oh, yeah. or maybe he would have just heated it at the fire. Actually, that, oh, yeah. yeah, that would make more sense. That he would have just had it on the go with the same water all the time. That he would have just heated it at the fire and put it put it into the bed. Um, but I suppose in a way, what we were shooting for was not, not alone Jared Manley Hopkins' room, but a kind of a typical room of... Like um, a period room. Of, yeah, a period yeah. room. Exactly, a period room. Yeah, the, and the cross definitely came from Leeson Street. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's also interesting to me because I think that Hopkins being so spiritual and so religious, um, one thing I like about this room is you you do pay attention to things that... I mean, obviously he was a, a human man who had a physical body, yeah. but a lot of the things in the room kind of call attention to that in a little bit yeah. in the details and everything. Yeah. Yeah. The juxtaposition between kind of the intellectual and the spiritual and also then like the body and that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and one chair for him to sit his, his tired body on <laughs> um, because two chairs, that's a whole different suggestion of a life. Oh. Two chairs means company. Two chairs... Um, I think it was Thoreau who said that um, uh, three for society, two for conversation and one for solitude or something that I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. But uh, one one share for Hopkins for sure, because um, I, I, I feel strongly that this was his refuge from what was outside the door, that at no point would he have been happy to bring much of that into into this room. Yeah. Um, and certainly, you know, not much from the city into this room. That probably would have been discouraged anyway, given that he was a, a Jesuit priest, for him to have friends, too many friends in the world outside, um, and to be bringing them in and bringing them through through the the um, the building. But I don't think there's no sense of that from his letters, mm-hmm. and there's no sense of him having um, a, a social space within this room. I think it was very much his refuge. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> Did you know much about Hopkins before you embarked on this curatorial project, or was it something that I suppose you learned as you were going along? I knew the poems. I had studied the poems, and um, I had read a couple of biographies, and um, so I think I did know a bit about him before we started. And then I I really got stuck in in terms of um, trying to get it right and to get a a, a sense of of the life um, and the work and the man and the mind that produced the poems and trying to not exactly reconcile the the um the life with the poet 
uh, you know, the, the the man who was a teacher with the man who wrote the poems because they're not reconcilable really. Um, but just to get a sense of who he was so as not to get it wrong. Um, and uh, there's a lot, there's several very good biographies in fact. But I, I get... I get a feeling that people, younger poets, younger readers, perhaps don't read him as much as they should, that he might be a little out of fashion now, that he might be seen um, almost somebody like Matthew Arnold that nobody right. really reads very much <laughs> anymore either. And I think that's a great shame because I do think, especially in terms of what's happening in contemporary poetry, would have pushed towards um, a, a, a kind of poem that has a lot of the, the world in it, but also that has a lot of the world processed through a mind in it, I think um, he's 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 appropriate. I think really, I think he would be a very good poet for younger poets who have a sense of social urgency and commitment to read. Mm. Um, I, and uh, I hope I hope that he doesn't fall out of favor. I hope that the difficulties of his language um, don't mean that uh, he becomes seen as some kind of fusty writer because he really isn't like that at all he's yeah. a very very vivid and energetic poet yeah which i think is as you said it's quite unusual for the time oh like, yeah like i don't think of matthew arnold in those terms no to say. no no no. It, no it's yeah. it's different it's a different it's a different kind of pyrotechnics yeah <laughs> let's say altogether. yeah 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 that's great is there anything else you want to add or talk about i feel um, like i don't think so um I don't think so. I'm very glad the Hopkins room is here. Yeah. I'm glad it looks the way it does. I'm delighted that we found those oh, papers yeah. inside the desk. Um, and yeah, I think it was it, it it was Christian Casey's decision to do up the room, and I'm awfully glad that she had that sort of that that idea and that commitment to it. And I, I think it's very important that the Hopkins room is here, that his legacy is preserved, that people read his work. Um, and not just out of any sense of a historic um, survey uh, of the poetry of, of his time, but of a sense of what it is that a poem can do and can be and how vivid it can be while also being very, um, you know, sincere and beautifully crafted. I think he is a kind of exemplary poet and a really, really interesting read. So I'm delighted that uh, this room honours him in that way. I'm delighted that his Irish sojourn, which was so unhappy for him, um, is is remembered uh, in the room and in the building, um, and that the poems in particular are uh, remembered, that the poems that he wrote here are, are remembered by the room and hopefully by, by the city as well. So I, I'm going to read uh, one of the terrible sonnets. It's the one that begins with the phrase, no worse there is none. So that's how we know it. It doesn't have a, a title as such, but that's how we know the poem. Um, it's an Italian sonnet. So we have eight lines and six lines with a break in the middle. No worst, there is none. Pitched past pitch of grief, more pangs will, schooled at four pangs, wilder ring. Comforter, where, where is your comforting? Mary, mother of us, where is your relief? My cries heave, herds long, huddle in a main, a chief woe, world sorrow, on an age-old anvil, wince and sing, then lull, leave off. Fury had shrieked, 
No lingering, let me be fell, force, I must be brief. Oh, the mind, mind, has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. Nor does long our small durance deal with that steep or deep. Here, creep, wretch, under a comfort serves in a whirlwind. All life, death does end, and each day dies with sleep. And that brings this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast to a close. This podcast was produced by Ian Dumphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dumphy on sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.